Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Scootybarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Scootybarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. I stood in the back and was okay for just a little bit. Then I felt the emotions well up, almost to the point of uncontrollable. And so I stepped through the walls, which were not really walls. They were just poles with a tin roof on top. And I left the 60 or so women and children and men as they sang underneath this shelter. And I walked away from it. And I had this indescribable emotion. It was sadness and yet joy, brokenness and yet hopefulness. And as I turned to look back, the emotions just overflowed, sobbing, because I knew the backstory. I knew who it was who was singing. I didn't know each of their stories, but I knew enough of their stories to know that four months earlier, none of these people gathered together to sing these songs. You see, it was six months prior that a pastor's wife heard the Lord say in a dream, I want you to go to that village and I want you to preach the gospel. She woke up and she told her husband, honey, today I'm going to this village and I'm going to preach the gospel. And he said, are you sure about that? Because you know and I know that pastors are not allowed there and churches are not allowed there because it's the king's village. See, in Africa, the tribes still have kings, and the kings still control the area that their tribe lives in. This particular village was the home place, the birthplace of the king of this tribe. And the pastor said, honey, you can't go because you know that no preacher is allowed there, and certainly no church is allowed there. And she said, God showed me that I'm to go. And so as she left, her husband said a prayer for her and hoped that she really did hear the Lord correctly. As she entered into this village, she heard the, the, the crying and she heard the sadness. And so she found somebody and she said, what is going on? And they told her that that morning two children died. And these were the mourns of the families and of the community. And there was a third child that was sick unto death and would probably be dying that day. And this woman said, take me to this child. So they walked her to the child and she spoke to the mother and said, the only chance this, this little boy has to live is if we pray to Jesus. Now this is out of character for this village and here's why. 
This is a village in southern Benin, Africa. The birthplace of voodoo. It's where everything voodoo started. It is a dark, depressed, gloomy, broken place because for centuries they have worshipped demons. Earlier that day, me and the rest of my team walked into the Python Temple, which is a voodoo temple full of pythons, actual pythons. That they worship during the day and in the evening they leave the doors open so that the pythons can go eat and inhabit whatever they want to inhabit. This is an area of the world where still today they offer human sacrifices. They just don't talk about it. One of the local pastors told me that not too long ago one of the kings died. And so word went throughout the whole area, do not let your children out of your sight because they need seven souls to send with this king. In his funeral. And I knew that this village being the birthplace of this king. Was also the place where they worshipped an idol. That translated is called the snake. It's rather appropriate don't you think. And we saw it when we drove into this village on the left hand side. There was a small wooden mound with two horns coming out of it. And it was their idol. The snake idol. Behind it was an entire um, um, uh, uh, forest that they knew as the demon forest. That's where the demons roamed throughout the day. And that they would, they would concentrate in that idol. And at night, they would go and they would release the demon out of the idol and the demon would roam through the village. So much so that None of the women were allowed out of their homes at night because if they leave their homes, they would be assaulted by the demons inhabiting men. This is their life. This is their normal. And so she came to this village knowing this history, knowing that the king had declared there will never be a church here. We have our God. And yet... She walked into this village, found the pain, and said, only Jesus can heal this child. And the mother, out of desperation, said, do what she must do. And she began to pray. And over the next several weeks, she would come regularly, and they would begin to pray inside of this house. And that child went from the brink of almost dead to fully alive. And that child was in that church Singing to Jesus, as was the mother of that child singing to Jesus, as were the two women who lost babies on that day were praising Jesus. As I listened to their testimonies, they all started exactly the same. I was an idol worshiper. I was a fornicator. I was far from God. And he rescued me. Let's go back just a few days. Two days before I left. I left on Wednesday, came back on Wednesday. A seven-day trip. That was it. Two days before I left, I was extremely tired. I was sitting in my office, and so I sat back and closed my eyes, and I said, I'm just going to rest a few moments. And I went over, and I pushed play, and I listened to Scripture being read 
to try to try to just help me rest a little bit. And somewhere in that time, I heard a passage of Scripture, Psalm 107. That's where we are today. And as I heard this passage of Scripture, I, I jolted out of my, my sleep or whatever I was doing, and I had to rewind it and say, what was that? I've never heard that before. And it just so happened that God gave me this passage of Scripture so that the next week I could see it lived out in front of my very eyes. It was 107 in the flesh. Here's what it says. Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. The command is to the people of God to give thanks to the Lord. So we have a command to us. We have someone we're supposed, that is supposed to be directed to, the Lord. And then we have a reason for giving thanks. The reason is twofold. For he is good, and his love endures forever. And so this is a circular passage. In other words, you start at the beginning. I'm going to give thanks to who? I'm going to give thanks to God. Why? Because he's good, and his love endures forever. But as I give thanks to the Lord because he's good and his love endures forever, it reminds me of his goodness and his love, and so I give thanks. And as I give thanks, I give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his love endures forever. But because I'm giving thanks, I see that he is really good and his love really endures forever, which causes me to give more thanks. Here's an interesting thing about giving thanks. By the way, the scripture all over tells us to be thankful, give thanks, to have a thankful heart. Because thankfulness and bitterness cannot exist in the same heart. It's impossible. They're mutually exclusive. Thankfulness and brokenness cannot, or not brokenness, but, but and anger cannot exist in the same heart. Thankfulness and greed cannot exist in the same heart. They're mutually exclusive. Thankfulness trumps everything else. So here's a little, a little tip in life. If you want to change your perspective, start giving thanks. You say, well, I have nothing to give thanks for. Yes, you do. And you have someone to give thanks to. You can give thanks to the Lord because he is good and because his love endures forever. Now here's the thing. We start giving thanks to God because of his goodness. And it's really because of the good that we see. And even more, more pointed than that, because of the good we receive. We all the time saying, oh, the Lord is good because something good happens. But God doesn't just do good things. He is good. His nature is good. He cannot be other than good. And out of his nature of goodness comes the goodness that he does. But whether we ever see his goodness or not, he is still good. And his love is the same way. It is an enduring love. It is a love that is not contingent upon whether or not you Deserve it. It's not a love that changes by the day. It's not a love that's determined by what he ate the night before for dinner. It is consistent and it's constant and it's everlasting. It endures forever. And so we give thanks to God because he is by his nature good and he does good things and he's a God of love and that love is expressed in so many different ways. The very next verse says this. Let the redeemed of the Lord. I, I think it should say, therefore, let the redeemed of the Lord. It doesn't say that, but I just, I feel like it, it's, it's a reason. The redeemed of the Lord are going to say so because we know who God is. It says, there, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord 
proclaim that which he or that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. This is where God drove the nail home. Because in the midst of Africa and Togo and Benin, I was in the midst of utter darkness. Demonic activity right in front of our very eyes. Idol worship on every single corner. Witch doctors throwing up flags, inviting people to come in and listen to the demons as they speak. And by the way, if you think it's not real, I invite you to go there and pretend it's not real. It'll take you all of about a day to realize it's the real deal. There's nothing joking about it. They call upon demons and the demons make themselves very, very known. And there's a history of this. And yet the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. The foe is Satan. The foe is the enemy of God. The foe is our enemy. He's our adversary. He's the one who's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Everywhere Satan is, death reigns. Everywhere. You've got the devil, you've got death. When I say is, I'm talking about where, where he has control, where, 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 where believers are not there. You take away believers and death reigns. That's why this village had so much mourning. Because every single day they invited the demons to roam throughout the village. And they did. And they couldn't explain why their children were dying. I can explain why their children were dying. Because where the church is now, by the way, that church is Four months old, 60 people gathering every single week to praise the Lord and to hear his word. And every single week, their mantra is this, we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, therefore we must go tell everyone we can tell. I'll tell you why the children are dying for no reason at all. And it's mysterious things. A wall will fall on them. They'll, they'll fall and hit their head. Things that ought not to happen to children. It's because when a child is born in that village, even to this day, just 30 yards from where this church is, there is a tree. And that tree has a bench. And that bench is where the king sits and offers the children up to the idols. And invites the demons to reveal what kind of ancestors might be in this child. And so when you lift a child up to a demon in that way, you should expect that a demon will do what a demon wants to do. Kill, steal, and destroy. This child got better. And then the group of people that were praying trusted Jesus. And they started to spread the word and more and more trusted Jesus. And then they started to meet, and the king got word of it. And the king said, who dares let them start a church in my village? And when the king heard that it was the pastor's wife, he said, I'm not touching her. Do what you want. <laughs> Apparently, he had heard from the Lord somehow not to mess with this woman. So question to you. You've been redeemed, right? It says, let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. If you've been born again, you're redeemed, right? To whom are you proclaiming your redemption? 
See, I think the problem is we don't remember either how much it cost for our redemption or from how much we had to be redeemed. See, when you go to someone whose testimony is, I used to worship idols, now I worship Jesus, they know what it costs to redeem them. They stared death in the face. They did live in darkness and gloom. It was not playtime for them. They understood that they moved from death into life because they buried family members, children, husbands, wives, grandparents who died without hope, and now they have hope, so they have a very distinct understanding of the difference between light and dark. But for you and for me, it's a little bit more difficult. In fact, the farther away from our redemption we get, the harder it is to remember the cost of our own redemption. Which isn't it true? Especially if we grew up in a Christian environment where we never were really that bad, we never had to go through that kind of stuff, we take it for granted because we, we feel like we only move from here to here. We go, yeah, they, they had to move from way over here to here, but for me, I just had to go like, boop, lost, born again. What we have to understand is that the price for your soul was the same price that Jesus paid for theirs. The Bible tells us it wasn't with, with uh, perishable things such as silver and gold that we were redeemed, purchased, bought back from an empty way of life, but with the blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. It wasn't silver or gold that purchased your soul. It was the blood of the Lamb of God. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Worthy is the Lamb, for He has purchased men with His blood from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So in other words, Jesus Christ spilt his blood and purchased men from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That is Africa, that is the United States, that's Zimbabwe, that's Europe, that's everywhere else. It was the price that he paid. <coughs> and so when it says, let the redeemer of the Lord proclaim that he's redeemed us, we would do well to remember the cost of redemption and the the, the amount of redemption. What did God save you from? What did he redeem you from? If you were an addict, then you can look and say, I'm no longer an addict. If you were, were, were involved in something else, you can look and say, I'm no longer there. But if you never got into all that stuff, please understand that what your heart truly is on its own is as black and as sinful as any other heart. You and I, as good as we might be, are still far away from God without the hope of the gospel. This made so much more sense to me, though, because earlier that day, we walked through the slave route. In this particular area of Benin, it was where almost 50% of the slaves that were sold were actually sold to the slave traders. So we stood underneath the tree where they would walk these men for, and women for hundreds of miles and, and line them up chained together underneath this tree and the slave traders would gather around and offer an exchange of goods for these lives. Let me tell you what a, what a life cost back then. It was 15 to 20 men for a cannon. It was... Two and a half men for a pipe to smoke 
Two and a half lives were the cost of a pipe. Could you imagine? Your life is no more valuable than half a pipe. And it was a man for a brick. One brick. One brick, one man. And so these slave traders would trade goods for these lives. And then they would take the ones that they purchased and they would march them to a house, which was a holding house. We walked into one of these houses, and let me explain to you what it was. You could smell the stench of death in your nostrils. You go, I can't explain it, but I can smell death here. Because it was a house that was built a couple hundred years ago, and it was built with a space underneath about that tall, so two and a half, three feet, to where when they would buy their slaves, they would pile them under the house, about a hundred or more at a time, because they wanted to, number one, break them down and, keep, and break their will to keep them from fighting and trying to escape, but they also wanted to get them to get used to the idea of being in tight corners so that when they marched them onto the ships, they were able to sail across the ocean without too much trouble. So in this space that was dirt floor and then the bottom of the, the house here, they would make the slaves crawl in there and they would feed them through a hole in the door. We got down into the hole, through the hole and crawled through the bottom of the space and you could just imagine the groaning and the stench and the lifeless bodies of those who didn't make it that far. After a while, they would simply drag the dead bodies out and throw them into a hole. And then when the hole was filled, they would push the sand over and move on to another hole. This is the context of where the gospel is currently exploding. This is, the, this is what we're looking at because it's hard for us to understand what true slavery is and, and true imprisonment is because we're far away from that in our context. But I want you to know that picture of what it is is the precise picture of where we are. We are slaves to sin. We are broken. We are living in desperate awful conditions when Jesus Christ redeems us out of that and not just redeems us out of that but in a few verses we'll see he lifts us into positions of kings and priests so we go from slave and chains to kings and priests not because we deserve it not because we ask it but because of the grace of God he offers it He has gathered them from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Verse 4. Some wandered in the desert, desolate wilderness, finding no, finding no way to, uh, to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty. Their spirits failed within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. They, he rescued them from their distress, and he led them by the right path to, to go to a city where they could live. And so there are four different kinds of people that the scripture says he rescued. The first one of those who were in the desert wilderness. They were hungry and they were thirsty. And God came through and rescued them. Now why did he rescue them? He rescued them simply because they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. 
The Bible says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say, for whosoever, if they're white, that will call upon the name of the Lord. For whosoever, if they're good, that will call upon the name of the Lord. For whosoever that are rich will call upon the name of the Lord. It says, for whosoever, and whosoever is whosoever. Doesn't matter the color, doesn't matter the nationality, doesn't matter the wealth, doesn't matter the status, whosoever. Which is why going to a place where the abject poverty is so uh, 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 evident in front of you and you see that God has rescued them. And here's the thing that kept going through my mind. Somehow, deep in our heart of hearts, we think we're better than someone like that. Somehow we measure up and we say, I'm glad I'm not in this position. God is good. What are we saying by that? Well, time out. God is good to me because I'm not in that position. No, no, God is good because he's good. I just happen to be born in a different place. I had to really look at my own self in the mirror because as I was watching these pastors, I was listening to this depth of, of teaching and I was listening to this, to this discipleship and I was listening to this, this passion and I'm thinking, man, we're just alike. Except that I've had infinitely more opportunities than you. And yet God is using you maybe even infinitely more than he's using me. Does that make sense? It's this idea of thinking that somehow because of where we are, because of what we have, that that God has magnificently blessed us more. No, 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 no. God doesn't look at that that way. God looks at the heart. And he can take the most broken person and make him a king, and he can take a king and make him a broken person. In fact, in the Bible, I believe there's a story about a king who eats grass for seven years, out of his mind mad, because he thought that he didn't need what God had to offer. So the Bible teaches us that out of this desolate wilderness, there were those who were thirsty, there were those who were hungry, and God stepped in because they cried out to him. And so the response is, because he's rescued us, let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love, for his wonderful works. For he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. Has he satisfied your hunger? And has he filled your thirst? Listen, I'm going to ask you a question. If we're to give thanks to the Lord, and if thankfulness is both an internal attitude and also an external action, right? I don't know if I said that, but I should have. It's an internal action. It's a heart of thankfulness, but it's also an action. If something's in your heart, it comes out. Why? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're thankful, you can't help but to be thankful externally. Is your thankfulness equal to the redemption of your soul? Let me say it differently. Do you give back to God equal to what he's given to you? Now look, we will never be equal. It's not possible because the redemption of your soul cost his own blood. So you'll never match that. You're not asked to match that. But the idea is this. Are they proportionally equal? Or is it grossly disproportionate? Let me say it differently. Do you tip God with your life? Because you received a service? And so you tip according to what you've received? 
And I'm not talking about just money. That's part of it. But I'm talking about your life. Are you, are you giving back to God what he deserves based on what he's done for you? How much does he have to fight with you when he wants you to go somewhere or do something? How much does he have to chase you when he calls your name and, and you run and hide? How much does he have to do in your life to, to get you to be generous? Do you tip him because you've gotten something from him and you're saying, yeah, give us good service, God. Here you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an extra 3%. Or have you said to God, God, I owe nothing. I was a slave and you've given me freedom. You've bought me back. You've redeemed me. I had nothing. Now I have everything. And so everything that I have belongs to you because it wasn't mine before. All of it's yours. All that I am, all that I want, all that I'll ever be, God, it belongs to you. And so you are Lord. What if we felt the weight of our own redemption? What if we felt the weight of the precious blood of Christ dropping to the ground, giving us life? What if we lived our life with one passion? And that was to be honoring to the only one deserving of honor. The next verse says, others sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in cruel chains. This was the backdrop I was thinking through. As I was looking at this house going, man, this was, this was going on a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, this was happening right here. Because they rebelled against God's commands, despised the counsel of the Most High, they broke their spirits with hard labor, they stumbled, and there was no one to help. And I thought, you know, voodoo was created as a way to keep people in fear, and it was created as a way to call upon the demonic for power. So it was all about fear and power and wealth, but the people chose to believe it. By the way, if you don't know this, Haiti is not the, the begin, birthplace of voodoo. I always thought it was. Haiti was populated by slaves from Togo and Benin. So they were shipped over and they brought their religion with them. That's how that happened. And so the scripture says, He broke their spirits with hard labor. He stumbled where there was no one to help. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from the distress. There's one common theme here. There's brokenness, there's desperation, there's, there's no hope, and then they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues them and saves them. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you continue through to the next passage, it says, Fools suffered affliction because of their rebellious ways and iniquities. They loathed all food and came near the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord. This is another, another group. It's the fools who suffered iniquities. They, they had no purpose. They had no, no, no reason except for themselves. Matter of fact, the political climate in Haiti is that very thing. All it is is power against power. And it's this constant fighting because there's no constant gospel government. I don't know if that made any sense. It made perfect sense in my head, so just delete that that said that. Verse 23, others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's works, the wondrous works in the deep. 
He spoke and raised stormy wind, and he stirred up the waves of the sea, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths. Their courage melted away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. So over and over and over we see that men are broken and in need, and God rescues them when they cry out to him. So there are two things in this passage. There are two movements, if you will. We're to, we're to give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. We're redeemed, and so let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that He's redeemed us, right? And then He says, we're to give thanks and proclaim redemption because of two things. One, because of what God has done. And two, because of who God is. This next passage, part, part of the passage, verse 33, speaks of God's sovereignty. And I, and I, can't, even, I can't even begin to describe the depth of what this means, but, but let's look at it. He turns rivers into desert, springs into thirsty ground. Listen to that. Rivers, flowing rivers, beauty, life. He turns spring, uh, rivers into deserts. So where there once was a river, there is now a desert. Any time we turn to do our own thing, he will turn a river into a desert. Sometimes it's over time and sometimes it's overnight. And that is the love of God that does that. Because he has to do something to get us to wake up and turn to the Lord. But at the same time, even though he does that, he turns fruitful land into salty wasteland. Because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. Right? So, fruitful into salty nothingness. But on the same time, he turns desert into a pool and dry lands into springs. He causes the hungry to settle there and to establish a city where they can live. And sow fields and plant vineyards and yield a fruitful harvest. Do you see what the scripture's saying? He can take a perfect situation and make it desperate, and he can make a desperate situation and make it perfect, and all he has to do is speak a word. That's it. So the danger for you and for me is to have all that God has given us and not praise him, not give him, pra uh, not, not give him thanks, not use what he's given us for his glory, to think that somehow our vast land has been because of our wonderful, mighty works. And at any moment, God could say, you know, you think a little too highly of yourself. I'm going to take it away. God can do that, and he does do that. And yet at the same time, God can say, you have nothing except for a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so today is the day that I'm going to change everything in your life. And I'm going to move you from desert to spring. Now why would God do that? He would do it for his own glory. And he would do it because of the condition of your heart. All throughout scripture, God honors obedience and he judges disobedience. You want to know the beautiful thing about the church in in Africa that I saw? Their discipleship was an obedience-based discipleship. What that means is this. They're, 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 not, they're not like teaching all the different facts of the Bible. They're teaching the very basics of the Bible. 
And after they teach a simple thing, they say, what are you going to do with what you just learned? Go do it, and then come back and tell me. It's obedience-based. For two years, these pastors and these, these church members are discipled in the Scripture. And the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. If you're not doing what you're learning, then you're not a disciple. And it dawned on me, and this probably sounds terribly offensive, but it was, it was just it was the best I could think of. The problem in the American church, as I see it, and in the church in a lot of places is, we've got so much knowledge that we're not being obedient to, that knowledge is literally rotting inside of us. And the rot inside of us is what's killing us. Because you have something inside of you that is rotten, it makes everything else rotten. What if we took away all of our knowledge, all that we think we know, all that we want to know, all of our ego, all of our high class pollutant, whatever, whatever, and what if we got back to the basics and said, what does Jesus want from me? Let's start at the beginning. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Lord, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to love God and I'm going to love my neighbor. The rest of it's important, but if you're not loving your neighbor and if you're not loving God, then all that other knowledge is rot inside of you. And I had to look at my own life on this and I said, wait a minute, where am I not being obedient? What is it that God has already said and I'm not doing? Those things in my life, he will turn from a spring into a desert. Listen, when we're obedient in the little things, God will turn the desert into a spring. Amen? He causes the hungry to settle there. They establish a city where they can live. They sow fields and plant vineyards and yield a fruitful harvest. He blesses them and they multiply greatly. He does not let their livestock decrease. What if the only thing we needed to do was be radically obedient? What if that was all that was expected? (laughs) That's funny, isn't it? All that God wants is everything. But isn't it? Now here's the deal. I am so thankful that God has not put your life as my responsibility. So very thankful that That it's not my job to walk through your life and tell you what you need to do to follow Jesus. It's not my job. Not my responsibility. That's my responsibility for me. It's not even my responsibility for my own family. I'm supposed to help and guide, but ultimately, each of us make the decision that we're going to make in terms of following Christ, right? So it's our job to help each other, to encourage each other, to motivate each other, to teach each other. But at the end of the day, you do what God has called you to do, or you don't. And you're the one that stands before God for that. And he blesses you or he doesn't based on your obedience. That's it. You're not responsible for my obedience and I'm not responsible for your obedience. We're responsible for telling each other and talking and encouraging. But each of us stands before God alone. So... As I look at this passage, I ask myself this question. Am I giving to God an equal proportion as He's given to me? Because if I'm not, 
then I've got to answer to God for that. Let whoever is wise, verse 43, pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. Will you be wise today? Church, I hope what you've heard is a passionate plea to radical obedience to the gospel. I hope what you've heard today is that the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I hope what you've heard today that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who will believe, no matter who you are or where you're from, because we all need it exactly the same. I hope you've heard today that the, the deeds of man are evil and wicked and brokenness and darkness. The Bible tells us that men love darkness more than the light, but Jesus Christ has busted through the darkness and he's giving hope in a place where there should be no hope. The church is flourishing in South Africa like a wildfire because God is removing the scales from people's eyes because when they cry out to him, he answers them. And the message is spreading because God's people are proclaiming that they've been redeemed. I wish I had time to tell you all the stories. Let me tell you one final story. We were coming back across the border from Benin to Togo. We had to drive across and we had to drive back. Very confusing. A lot of people just very, uh, it, it's, like a, it's like any border. You got kids selling things and adults selling things. And I was standing to the side because I had gotten all my paperwork done and, and I was waiting for the rest of the team. And this kid came up and tried to sell me some chiclets or tissue or something. I said, I don't, I don't have any money. And I didn't. I honestly didn't have any francs with me. That's what they, that's what they use. And he kept saying, ask, ask God. Ask God. I'm thinking, what do you mean? He goes, ask God. God give you. I'm like, oh, okay, that's pretty smart. Ask God to give me something so I can buy something. Yeah, okay, I, I get what you're selling there. And to be honest with you, I was tired. I wasn't really in the mood for it. I wasn't thinking much like a pastor or a Christian. I was thinking of... I was being guarded because the kid wanted to sell me something. I didn't want it, and I tried not to be mean, but at the same time, I, it, it was just this onslaught of people, nonstop. Everybody wanted a piece of you, right? And finally, I said, you ask God, or just give it to me, and then ask God to give you money. Yeah, real pr- Christian-like, right? So he thought for a minute. He gave it to me and started walking away. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, no, let's, we can't do that. It's okay. He goes, I'm Muslim. I go, really? I said, I'm a Christian. I said, you ever heard of Jesus? He goes, no. I said, can I tell you the story? Okay. And so with all the commotion, I tried to, to manage through the gospel with this little kid. He must have been 12, maybe. And I didn't realize it because all that was going on, but one of the guys with us was standing back watching. And he said, Jeff... This kid was hanging on to every single word. It was a brand new story. And there was something inside going on. And I felt like I just butchered the gospel because it was, there was so much, you know, trying to make sense of it in that two minutes. We went back to the van. And, and fortunately, my friend had some money. So we called him aside, gave him a little bit of money just, just to say thank you. The kid came up to the van afterwards and said, thank you. Thank you so much. He shut the door. And I can't help but wonder if when I'm in eternity and I'm standing before Jesus, 
he says, I, I want you to meet somebody. Remember that 12-year-old Muslim boy at the border? Here he is. You know, when, when I think of the possibility there, all of the stuff we do every day seems to not mean a whole lot anymore. You know what I mean? Like the stuff that we worry about, the stuff that we fight over, the stuff that we, 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 we get all worked up about, the th- stuff that make us, makes us anxious. It's like, how do I have time to worry about that stuff when we're talking about souls of people who if they die without Jesus, they will spend eternity without Christ in a place the Bible calls hell. I don't have time for this other stuff. And neither do you. Let the urgency of Psalm 107 rise up inside of you. Let the passion of being redeemed from an empty way of life rise up inside of you. Determine that today you will honor Jesus with everything. And then wake up tomorrow and do it again. Father, I pray. I pray that somehow, some way, you would clear away all of the cobwebs that are maybe distracting us from the, the, the true guts of our faith. Father, I pray that you would You would remove the things that make us not look like you. And that you would put into us the things that do look like you. Father, I pray for radical obedience for each of us. I pray that you would turn our knowledge into obedience. So Lord, let there be both. But let obedience rule our hearts. I pray, Father that you would bless us. And I pray that you would take away the things in our lives that we are not using to give back to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand? As we sing, I want you to take a moment to reflect on what God is uh, saying to you. If you need to trust Christ, I invite you to do that today. If maybe God has brought to mind an idol or, or... Anything else in your life that that needs to be corrected, I invite you to make that correction today.